The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Let's ask God's help. Father, each week as we... Uh, come to this particular moment, I am acutely aware of how utterly dependent we are upon you. We need your power and your strength in the speaker. We need your power and your strength in the hearers. We need you to work, Father, if anything's going to happen now. And it, and it isn't just that it would be nice if something would happen now, but this is a matter of real life and death. It's through the preaching and receiving of your word that you call dead men to life. It's through the preaching and receiving of your word that you sustain and strengthen your saints. There's much at stake. But we praise you that none of this rests on us or our, our own abilities. That as I said, we are wholly and completely dependent upon you for every portion of what we now seek out, seek to do. So we pray, Father, that you would come now by your spirit. Speak through your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. We continue working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're in, we turned the corner last week. We're in chapter 4. This morning, we'll just read these first three verses together. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. Excuse me. Every word matters. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So not only, as we discovered last week, not only have we turned the corner, turned the page from one chapter in Paul's letter to the next, but we really have found a shift in Paul's focus. I've been preparing you over the last two or so years that eventually we were going to move out of the indicatives, out of the statements of what is true and into the imperatives, into commandments and a, and a call to live in a certain way. And so we, we spent much time last week really considering that word together, therefore. And, and I told you then, and, and I really have been struck by it, particularly in my studies this week, just the fact that the Christian, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is the Christian has a therefore. He not only has a therefore, he knows what the therefore is. The basis and, and the grounding and the encouraging and the enablement to do all that we are commanded to do. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We spent much of our time Sunday morning considering that, and then we came back together Sunday evening. And this is just a side note. 
but a serious one. My deep desire and my hope for us is that we would be a people where Sunday evening looks just like Sunday morning. There are things that we just, time will just not allow. And you may think, dude, you get an hour to preach. What do you mean time doesn't allow you to fully unpack? I'm telling you, there's more meat on this bone than you could ever imagine. Not in two sermons, not in 200 sermons. And so much of what our pattern has become is we come back on, it's almost as though Sunday morning just prepares us for Sunday evening. And, and so I, I don't say this to shame or to scold. And, and I do not place some commandment on you that I don't find in scripture. I, I do just encourage you, if at all, humanly possible. Just make it your family's pattern. You will come back on Sunday evening and drink one more time from the well. Especially this evening, because I'm going to tell you that we're just going to dip our, our toe in the water. But we, we came back last Sunday evening and we considered together the calling to which we have been called. Because what Paul's calling us to do here is walk in a manner that is worthy. And, worthy and we I talked about the, the fact that that word really is a, it's almost an economic word. It, it points to the, the balancing of scales. We need to walk with, a, with an equal weight, an equal measure, an equal gravity to the calling with which we have been called. And so if that's going to be the lens and, the, and that's going to be the standard, then shouldn't we know compared to what? what? What is the calling to which we have been called? And so what we did, you'll recall, is we spent New Year's Eve together just searching the scriptures. It was just scripture after scripture after scripture, thinking together about what is this incredible calling? And I told you that that word can also be translated as vocation. It's, it's the thing or the destination to which we've been called. And so what we found last Sunday evening was that our hearts were just, I can't speak for everyone, but my heart was overwhelmed as I considered that God had called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. He had called us from hopelessness and unto himself. He's called us to forgiveness and to holiness. He's called us to a place in heaven. He has called us to an unfading and imperishable inheritance. He has called us to see his glory and to become glorious ourselves. But at the same time, what we found is, is that all of this can only be found in Christ. That not only has all of this calling cost God the precious blood of his only begotten son. But in addition to this, it can only be found as we ourselves are called into fellowship with Christ Jesus. But the natural mind, the man who has only been born of the flesh, he can't accept these things. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, crucified for the sins of the world, for the natural man, it's, it's foolishness. It's a stumbling block. And so that's why we must be called. Someone else must call us and there must be a power in the calling, an efficacious call, the kind of call that brings life where there was death. This call which shines the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ, into the hearts of otherwise hardened men. We talked about the fact that this comes through preaching, of course, the preaching of ordinary men. But it's even through the preaching of ordinary men when, in the words of Paul in Romans 4, God gives life to the dead. And calls into existence things that do not exist. And, and so you put all of that on, on one side of the scale, so to speak. The immeasurable greatness of the calling to which we have been called. Considering how undeserving and incapable we are of, in and of ourselves of ever laying hold of this magnificent calling. Understanding how little we had to do with the entire transaction. And this should then give us the, the drive and the desire and the ability to live lives of, of holiness and weight and of substance. It should set us free from any kind of fear or, or slavish burden. It, it should bring us to a point of confidence that because we had, because we had no power in bringing ourselves to this calling, it's not up to us to remain there. That in Christ Jesus, our work is guaranteed, our success is already secured, and therefore our labors are never in vain. In addition to this, it set us free to run with joy and, and gratitude. For no other purpose, this, this running, this walking, this laboring, this striving, it's not meant to earn something with God, but rather it's a show of gratitude. It's a desire to feel his pleasure. 
I, I gave you that quote. It's, it's a worn out quote, but it just, it works. From Eric Little in Chariots of Fire when he says, look, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That really is a picture of the, the true Christian life. God made me this way. And when I exercise the gifts that he's given me, he smiles and I like it. And so what we're going to find then is, as we move out of that, Paul's not going to give us, he's not going to give us what the fleshly heart wants. He's not going to give us step-by-step instructions. He's not going to say, okay, now here's what it looks like. And he's going to give us the, the choreographed steps to what the worthy walk looks like. Instead, what he gives us is more of a, a pattern or a stride or a, or a cadence. And so we come here and we look and he gives us a bit more of a picture, but again, a fairly broad picture of what the worthy walk is meant to look like. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so I challenge you, I suppose, or I asked you last week if you were God or if you were Paul, and you were seeking to lay out the, the pattern of the worthy life, where would you begin? And I can think of any list of commandments that I might give, any, any list of warnings that I might lay out, but instead he talks to us about Christian unity and, and peace. Then he'll eventually go on to talk about a, a spiritual maturity that's meant to manifest itself here in the brethren, in the, in the body. But he begins here in these verses, verse 2 and, and 3, with he begins with two prepositional statements, each of them beginning with the word with. You see in the first part of verse 2, he says, with all humility and gentleness. And then again, the second half, with patience. This is the way of the worthy walk. Humility and gentleness and patience. These really are the fundamental attributes or, or markers of the worthy walk. Then Paul seems to give a little bit more sharpness or clarity or definition to the picture. But because if you think about it, humility and gentleness and patience, these are, these are fairly broad characteristics. And so in anticipation of us maybe asking, okay, well, then how do they play out practically? What do they look like? Not just when I'm alone in my prayer closet, not just when I'm alone on a mountain with God. How do they play out in the context of the local church? What's it look like to be humble and gentle and patient in a faith family like this. So Paul adds there in the third part of, of verse two, he says that we're to bear with one another in love. Then in verse three, he says that we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So I think if you put all these things together, you have a bit of a sketch. It's again, it's not step by step. It's not do A, then B, then C. But we have, I think, a little bit of a sketch, a profile of what the Christian, the worthy walk, a life that lives in light of the therefore, what it looks like. It's filled with humility, all humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and an eagerness for unity. Now, before we even consider what even any of these words mean, I suppose we do well to ask, do you ever even think about these things? Do you desire these things? Perhaps you think about these things and you desire these things, but when you find these things lacking in your life, do you actually do anything about it? We're the people who know about the depravity of man, the wretchedness of sinners, our, our inability to clean ourselves up, our inability apart from the working of God's spirit, the power of his word to do anything to please God. Well, here's the ditch that we can fall into. We just sit around and we waller in that filth. I'm a wretch, God. I'm a sinner, God. It's almost as though we rejoice there and never seek to do anything about it. Never give our lives over to those means of grace by which God has called us to make war on our sin. So before we consider what any of these words mean, I ask you again, when you find yourself lacking in humility and gentleness and patience, when you find yourself unable to bear with one another's burdens, when you find yourself not striving for and eager to maintain the unity which God has brought to his church. Are you doing anything about it? 
So as we consider that sketch that he's painted, you, you may be, I guess, surprised by the foundational role that Paul gives these traits in the worthy walk. Again, if you had been making your own list, you may have started somewhere different. So you may be surprised that this is really the, the place where Paul begins his conversation. And, and while we may have lost sight of them at times in our own life, I'm sure that there's none of you that are unaware that these are meant to be the marks of the Christian life. Like while your mind might not have gone there apart from Paul leading you there, when you heard those words, you weren't caught off guard. You said, yeah, that sounds like a Christian. That sounds like a worthy walk. Someone who's gentle and someone who is humble and someone who is patient and someone who bears with one another and someone who is eager to maintain. Yeah, yeah, that's a Christian. That's good. That's, that's a worthy life. In fact, I would argue that in general, you don't have to be a Christian to value those things, at least not externally, at least not generally. And that's in part what I think muddies the waters a little bit. Think about it. The world sees patience as a virtue. The Christian sees patience as a virtue. But the scripture says that patience is a fruit of the spirit. Scripture also says in Romans 8, 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this is where it's helpful for us to remember that the therefore doesn't just tell us the, the motivation for our holiness, but it, it tells us the means and the way by which we can walk worthily. Because for the Apostle Paul, what he has in mind here is not external conformity to some law. It's not outward acts that look like and maybe even mimic humility and gentleness and patience and the world can do that it's true there's many of us that we might look to our neighbors and they have all the external signs of goodness and compassion all the outward appearances of virtue that at least in this moment seem to be lacking in me as Paul would say to Timothy they could have the appearance of godliness but what Paul is drawing our minds to, what, what the Christian desperately needs and, and the fruit that we look for, it comes from something that runs way deeper than this. It comes from something that has an altogether different aim and an altogether different source. Something that overflows from a transformed life to the praise of his glory. Something which only those who have been born again of the Spirit of God can ever truly possess. So it seems to me then, if, if the world honors something called humility or patience or gentleness, and we also use that same word to say it's something that we strive for, and we find that the world doesn't honor us when we walk according to God's pattern, there seems to be conflict there. And if this thing is humility, gentleness, patience, if this is a thing that only God's spirit can bring, then we do well to slow down and ask, how does the Bible define these terms? Because it seems as though we can't be talking about the same thing. We, we can't be talking about the same picture. If, if the world can strive for humility, yet hate the things that we strive for. And surely we need to slow down and say, okay, then what is biblical humility? What is Christ exalting gentleness? What is this patience that only the Spirit of God can bring? If we don't do this, then we set ourselves up for a life of confusion and, and robotic false piety, a, a kind of legalism, the ex, external shell of holiness without any real root to it, any, any real substance to it, instead of being set free to run the way that we just talked about last Sunday night, a, a, a free, a, a spirit-filled, a spirit-enabled, a joy-filled running, a true happy holiness. So this morning, we're just... And to consider that first word, that word humility. And, and I think that Paul starts there because this really is a foundational Christian attribute. I, as I really thought about it this week, I have to, and, and maybe it's in part because of my own makeup, because of my own struggles with, with pride, but it really does seem to me that a, apart from the possible exception of repentant faith, there is no greater evidence of the Spirit's redeeming work in your life than a move to humility. 
Humility really is the mark of a transformed Christian life. It's, it's the lifeblood that gives vitality and sincerity to everything else that Paul is going to talk about coming forward. If, if you step into this thing with pride and then you strive to do everything else that Paul is going to talk about in the rest of this letter, you will fail. Again, you may have all the external markers of success, but the heart of it all won't be there. But, but humility is one of those it's one of those tricky words, and more than a tricky word, it's a, it's a tricky thing. It's, it's one of those things that the minute you really start to think about it, it, it runs away. That if you focus on your own humility too long, even on your lack of humility too long, what you find is that you're all the more absent of it. And so I started to wonder if, if maybe the most Humble people are those who think the least about humility, maybe? Or maybe the most humble people are those that are most unaware of their own humility? But not only this, it's, it's an extremely word, extremely difficult word, at least for me to, to try and define. Again, that may just be because I, I find myself so lacking in it. But I find it an extremely difficult thing to really pin down and define. And again, definitions really matter, not just because we don't want to be confused and we want to know what's different about us from the world, but surely you can look around you at the, at the downward spiral of the world in which we live and realize that so much of it really is tied to a battle over definitions, a battle over the dictionary and what words are, are going to mean. And so we of all people must be devoted to figuring out what do these words actually mean? And it's got to be something more than just going to a dictionary. The world, has, the world has access to Webster's or whatever, although you realize they're going to make tra they change stuff, right? The definition of a boy, the definition of a girl, the definition of a woman, those things seem to be changing all around us. So it's got to be more than just going to a dictionary. And so, well, okay, maybe I just go then to a, to a lexicon, to, a, to a, a Bible dictionary of sorts that's going to tell me, what does this word mean in Greek? What does this word mean in the original language? What does this word seem to mean in its general biblical usage? And if, if you look at, at the word humility or, the, or the, the family of words tied to humility, you'll find reference to modesty and, and lowliness and abasement, lacking arrogance. So much of what you see in the Old Testament with regards to humility really is humiliation. It's taking a man who is pride and God laying him low, stripping away his honor, stripping away his resources, stripping away his titles. You come to the New Testament and you find verses like Romans 12, 3. It says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Or that, that classic passage on humility where it points us towards the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 2, where we're told to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So in, in theory, we could stop there and not be probably any worse for the wear. That, that is somewhat different than the world's definition of humility. And so if we say, okay, we're not going to think more highly of ourselves than we ought and we're we're, we're going to count others more significant than we are. But as I, as I wrestled this week, I, I kept coming to the thought that there's, there's something more. There's something more foundational than that. That, that true Christian humility isn't just sober-minded judgment about yourself. It isn't just the constant reminder that there's always going to be someone out there that is bigger or stronger or faster or prettier or smarter or more holy than you. That's really just being knocked down to size. Sometimes that's just the way that the world seeks humility, right? I need to stop being a big fish in a little pond and go realize I'm a little fish in a big pond. But I think there's something more. And I don't even think that we can stop at just this idea of Christian humility being merely remembering who we were when God once found us. That's what I find myself trying to do. That was the, the first command that Paul gives us in this letter, the only command we found in the first three chapters. Remember, remember, remember who you were. 
Remember you were hopeless. Remember you were lost. Remember you were unable to find your way back to God. Remember your, your depravity and your wretchedness and your deadness and sin. I think humility is, is, is more than just remembering that and it's more than just remembering that absolutely everything we now have has come from the hand of God. Again, although those are perfectly acceptable ways to think about and, and strive for humility. Paul, after calling himself a servant and speaking to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I wouldn't, I wouldn't fault anyone if they said, okay, I'm going to give myself over to just remembering where I am in the pecking order, to remembering who I was before God called me out of darkness and into light, remembering that anything I have, absolutely everything that I have, whether we're talking about spiritual goodness or what you might call just worldly, earthly, fleshly type goodness, all of it has come from God. But here's the problem that I've experienced in my own life. Whenever I try to head down that path, what I end up with is a great deal of self-loathing, self-loathing, and almost no joy-filled worship. I find lots of shame and no transformation. I find myself growing in contempt for myself, but not in love for God. Now, I realize that my own failures don't change the definition of a word. Just because I stink at something, I don't get to change the rules of the game. I don't get to alter the target because I can't hit the target. And, and I do recognize that if you go and look at um, basically everyone who encountered the glory of God, go look at the prophet Isaiah as he was there and he came into contact with the holy, holy, holy God. His first response was, woe is me. There wasn't a basement there. There was a realizing just where he stood in the pecking order. There was a realizing you are holy and I am not. But, but I think at the root of all of this is something that's a whole lot less me-focused. Completely externally focused, getting my eyes off of myself. And, and I think maybe we, we do well to remember that when Christ Jesus sought to reveal his heart, there's, there's just a few passages. We, a, a lot of what we see about Jesus and about his heart, we... Um, we learn by observation of his life, or we learn by hearing him pray to the Father, or we learn by seeing him interact with a leper or a paralyzed man, or his words upon the cross. Very rarely does Jesus speak directly about himself, directly about his own heart. But one of those places when we do see him talking about his own heart, he speaks about himself in Matthew 11 as meek and lowly, gentle and humble in heart. So this tells me there's gotta be some fundamental definition of hum, uh, humility that is not primarily about my own sin because the most humble man that ever lived had no sin. The most humble man to ever walk the earth was perfect in his obedience. So again, there's got to be some more foundational definition to the word humility that gets my eyes off of myself and even my own sin and onto something else. And so tonight... God willing, part of what we're going to do this evening is we're going to consider, we'll read some C.S. Lewis stuff and some Chesterton stuff. And, and, and C.S. Lewis really had this, this picture of self-forgetfulness when it came to what true humility was. This, he says that when you meet a humble man, he won't be thinking about humility. In fact, he won't be thinking about himself at all. And so that really is kind of a definition of humility that I have settled on. It's, it's a self Forgetfulness. It's an ability to live like I'm not a main character, even in my own life. So many people, they have convinced themselves, they've allowed the enemy to convince them that they're the main player, not just in their own life, but in everybody else's. And I'll tell you how, it, just to bear my own soul for a minute, I'll tell you how it plays out in a guy like me. I'll tell you that while I struggle with pride, I'm not always particularly fond of me. But the way that pride will manifest itself is I will have a conversation with you that lasts all of five seconds. Then I will spend all of five years replaying that conversation because of some dumb thing I've said, worried that you're sitting around still thinking about it. 
Forgetting that I'm an extra in your story. I'm not the main player. I'm not the main character. But still, I don't think we're there. Still, I don't think we're at, at, at the, the foundational level, the real, the real heart, because it seems to me that this self-forgetfulness, it's, it's a result of something called humility. It's a result of a posture called humility. It's a fruit of this thing called humility rather than humility itself. Again, we'll come back tonight because the call here isn't just to be humble, it's to walk humbly. And so really tonight, that's what we're going to focus on. How does this thing work itself out? But I just want to know, what is the thing? What, what, what is humility and where does, where does humility come from? Because what I find is the more I try to forget myself, the more I'm thinking about myself. It's just a snowball. It's, it's, it's a pit. It's, what's this stuff called? It's, it's quicksand. It's quicksand, right? The more I struggle with it, the, the, the deeper that I go. And so my attempt at a definition, and I would, and, I, and the more I think about it, I don't even think this is a definition. I think this is just what I see in scripture that helps my little pea brain. And so I would encourage you maybe to spend some time this week wrestling with this on your own and trying to come up with your own definition or your own root or heart of it. And, and I'll tell you that what I found this week is the kind of guys you listen to is going to greatly influence this. You're going to hear John Piper coming all throughout this. He's greatly influenced the way I think about my wrestling with the flesh and the way that I, that I think about what true humility, true holiness, truly seeking the glory of God is, is all about. So that's your homework. That is your homework. Email me your definition. I want to hear it. It'll tell me who you've been listening to. It'll tell me where your heart is. Here's my shot. Humility is a peculiar spirit-wrought disposition of the heart which delights in and trembles at the glory of God, thereby compelling a man to seek his own highest good by drawing his eyes and the eyes of others away from himself and toward God. To me, humility is, I have seen what is best and I won't allow even myself to get in the way. I have tasted what satisfies and I won't allow even my own name, even thoughts of myself to get in the way, much less will I allow myself to become, come between someone else and that thing. Let me try and show you how I arrived there. And, and again, I, I, can't un, I can't unpack this. Not in, not in one sermon, not fully. Not in one sermon, not in ten sermons. This really is just what I, what I see. But scripture makes clear that I guess the antithesis of humility is, is pride. Always you will see pride and humility placed side by side as, as competing ways of life is, is a competing root. Scripture says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so we see this all throughout scripture, that unrighteousness and ungodliness, it's always found in proud people. Not only this, that because of this, that few things draw the ire and, and the hatred and the contempt of God like human pride. I want you to think about that text that David read earlier. There was a list of things that God despises that he detests. And we're going to come back. That might be a good, another piece of homework to go study that for yourself. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. And consider those things which God says that he hates. And how many of them tie directly to what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do. How he's calling us to walk. But the thing that leads the, leads the list. It almost always seems to lead the list with regards to God's those things which God hates is haughty eyes. Pride always seems to be leading the list. Proverbs 8.13 says, Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. What comes first? Pride and arrogance. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. So that just as humility really is at the core of Christian virtue, Pride really is the foundational rot behind all sin. It, it's, it's pride. 
Wherever you find a man opposing God and opposing his word, you're sure to find the spirit of pride. Again, let us not define pride as I love myself. I think that I am perfect. I find myself to be a real pleasure to be around. Often pride is a self-loathing. But it's so much of a focus on self that we never get our eyes on God. It's so much a, a contempt for self that I will do anything I must do to elevate my thoughts of self, even if that means doing things which God has commanded against. So I want you to think about what the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah 14, he's, he's speaking here of the king of Babylon. And, and some people, many, many people, I don't, not a few people, many people think that maybe what he's referring to here ultimately is the fall of, of Satan. I don't, I don't necessarily think so, but, but we do know that it's the same spirit, that same spirit of rebellion and hatred towards God, which led Satan and his demons in their rebellion. It's that same, that same spirit which permeates all sin and certainly a prideful man like the king of Babylon. But we read in Isaiah 14, 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. For you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will, I will, I will, I will make myself like the most high. Isn't it the same heart, the same root that we found manifesting itself in a man like Lamech, not the good Lamech, the bad Lamech. Like, like the people in the Tower of Babel, we read in Genesis 11:4, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. That's it. I will, I will, I will, I will make a name for myself. This is what we find all the way back in the Garden of Eden. With what did the serpent tempt the woman? God knows when you eat of the fruit, you will be like him. So eat the fruit and make yourself like him. I will eat the fruit and I will be like God. So pride really at its root is idolatry of self. It's trying to take that which belongs to only God alone. What is the greatest commandment? That we're to love the Lord our God with all that we have and all that we are. And so pride doesn't mean just denouncing God. It doesn't mean just trying to completely remove God from the throne. It means trying to squeeze your fanny in there too. Just make a little place for yourself. It's looking at the word of God that says, you come to Christ Jesus in faith and you'll be seated with him in the heavenly places. And you say, yeah, but I'd rather build my own throne. I'd rather find my own way. So at its, at its core, what pride is, is a desire for self-exaltation. But I've, I've got to put the point of emphasis on self. Self-exaltation. Because the desire for exaltation, that's not a problem. You think about it. We're commanded to seek glory. Isn't that what lays for the end of us at the golden chain of redemption? That we will be glorified. Now, this is a reflective glory. This is a, a received glory. This is a, this is a glory that fulfills what God called Adam and Eve to be in the garden, to take the glory of God as image bearers and to show it to the ends of the earth, to be made holy, to look like Jesus Christ, that, that that's the kind of glory that he's told us to, to long for. But it's, but it's not just a call to reflective glory. It's not just a call to radiate the glory of God. It's not just a call to look like Christ Jesus, his son. It's also a call to honor as well. And, and I find that to be a critical point because over and over and over again, what you'll find in Scripture is that the impetus to humility is exaltation. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. The Lord Jesus, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So this isn't a call to not desire honor. This isn't a call not to desire glory. This isn't a call not to desire to be exalted. It's a call not to desire to exalt yourself. And this is key because I can't turn off. God has wired me to want the things he's promised. He's wired me to want glory. He's wired, wired me to want honor. He's wired me to want to be exalted. And if I just try to 
arbitrarily suppress those things, I'll never win. I will never find myself humble. I'll be denying the urges that God has put within me. And so we, we recognize that, again, going back to Philippians 2, God's, uh, God calls us there. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He doesn't say, don't look to your own interests, look to the interests of others. He says, don't only look. Your interests still matter. It's not about this desire for humility, the humble heart. It's not about learning to despise yourself. And it's not about stopping want, to stop wanting what is good for you. It's about wanting what is best. It's about wanting honor and glory and exaltation that only God can give. I'll show you a couple of passages that I hope make this clear. Romans 2.6 says, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So anytime God lays out a comparison like this, we'd probably do well to pay attention. On one end, you've got eternal life. On the other, you've got wrath and fury. And he says that eternal life comes to those who patiently endure and doing well. Now, now, he begins this by saying God will render to each one according to his works. I don't have time to unpack that, but you know from the overarching teaching of Scripture, he's not saying you earn salvation. He's not saying you earn anything with God. What he is saying, however, just like Paul is saying in Ephesians is there will be a transformation of life. There will be things that come out of this changed life that God has wrought. So he says eternal life for those who patiently endure in doing well, wrath and fury for those who are unrighteous and do not obey the truth. So eternal life for those who walk worthily, wrath and fury for those who don't walk in a worthy way. But Paul goes beyond this. He doesn't just draw attention to the walk. Again, I think that's the fruit. I think that's the evidence. I think that's an outpouring of something deeper. And so he goes behind this. He tells us what's the therefore supporting each one of these walks. What's the driving force in the makeup of a heart that follows each one of these? He says that the righteous man, the one headed to eternal life, seeks for glory and honor and immortality. While the unrighteous man, the one headed for nothing but wrath and fury, is self-seeking. Now, if I hadn't just spent 35 minutes preparing your hearts for what comes, those would seem like the same kind of thing. Neither one of those things would seem like humility. They would both seem like abject pride. Seeking glory and honor? How is that any different than seeking self? How is that any different than selfish ambition? But instead, what Paul tells us is, far from being the same thing, they're polar opposites. These are things headed in markedly different directions, one to heaven and one to hell. The difference is, which direction are we looking? In what way are we seeking? What, what is the direction of our gaze? Am I seeking self? Or am I looking externally for these things that I desire? So apparently, according to Paul, there's a glory and there's an honor that we're not only allowed to desire, but we're commanded to seek and to pursue and to chase after. The word he uses here for seeking, it's used all throughout Scripture really of a pursuit and a chasing and a hunting. That same word is used of the devil as he prowls around seeking someone to devour. And so to my pea brain, to my, to my simple mind, the question isn't whether I will desire honor and glory. The question is, from whom will that honor and glory come? To whom will that honor and that glory point? And then based on how I answer those two questions, in what way will I seek this honor and this glory? Every man seeks for honor. Every man seeks for glory. Every man seeks for exaltation. And the way in which we seek it and the place in which we seek it, that reveals a heart of either humility or a heart of pride. Are you still with me? So Jesus talking to the Jews that would eventually seek to kill him. John 5, he says, how can you believe? How can you believe the words that I say 
when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. In that, in that same letter, excuse me, that same gospel, John 12, he says, nevertheless, even of, even of the authorities, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogues for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So men love glory. The question is, do I love the glories of men or do I love the glory that comes from God? Will I be a heart? Does my heart reveal that it settles and it seeks for the glories of men? There, there's an honor and there's a glory and there's an admiration and there's a praise that can come from fellow creatures. And if you allow yourself, you'll stop and you'll just settle there. And it's a comparative kind of glory, isn't it? It's a glory that looks around and judges in light of everyone else that's around you. That's why I said it's not particularly helpful for me to remember that there's a whole lot of people that are stronger or faster or smarter and holier than me. Because guess what? There's also a whole lot that are worse. And so you, where do you think my eyes are going to go if that's the game we're going to play? To the worse? I'll be the tax collector standing in the synagogue saying, God, I thank you that you didn't make me like that guy. But true humility stands and beats its breast. Looks, can't even bear to look towards heaven. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what did, what did the Lord say in that parable? He said, I tell you that that man is the one who's been exalted. He who humbles himself. Who doesn't worry what he looks like about the others. He doesn't seek the glory that comes from men. He doesn't have a comparative glory as he, as he judges himself on a scale. He looks to God and to God alone. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks about those who give or those who pray or those who fast in order to be seen by others, praised and receive the glory of others. He says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. There's a glory that man can give. He can bestow upon you, but it ends here. That's all it is. And, and I find myself, I, I find myself chasing that glory. But because it never satisfies, I'm never satisfied. I need more and I need more and I need more. You telling me I'm a good boy today won't sustain me tomorrow. I need you to tell me how pretty I am tomorrow too. That's this fleeting kind of glory. This honor that never satisfies. But the heart of true humility, it doesn't seek the praise of man. It has seen and tasted something far greater. And a glory that comes from that one who is greater. It's an enduring glory, an eternal glory, a, a glory that lasts forever and forever, a glory that a glory that will leave you truly content and satisfied, not in yourself, not with who you are and not with the praises of man, but only him. And that's the heart that desires to hear from God. Zephaniah 3 talks about God rejoicing over his people. He says, I'll rejoice over you with gladness. I will quiet you by my love. I will exult over you with loud singing. Now that's the kind of glory. That's the kind of honor. That's the kind of exaltation that my heart longs for. I know that I'm meant to need it. I know that I'm meant to desire it. I know that I'm meant to seek it. But I settle. And the only way that I'm going to stop settling for that is if I lay my eyes on the one who gives that glory, who offers that exaltation, who brings that honor. It only comes as I get my eyes off of myself and on to him. Quit looking at you people and quit looking at myself. Again, what did I say? Humility is a particular spirit wrought disposition of the heart, which delights in the glory of God. I should have probably said more than anything else. I don't just delight in the glory of God. It makes everything else look like dumb, like rubbish, like nothing. And therefore, anything that gets in the way, my own heart, my own pride, even your compliments, anything that might get in the way of keeping my eyes fixed on him, that I can see his face, that I can desire his voice, that I can hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Any of those things, I'm going to put it to death. And more than this, the last thing I'm going to do is seek to get in your way of enjoying that same glory and honor. I'm one who has, who has tasted. I, as I thought about the, 
this, this glory that we have beheld and the thing that we've tasted, my heart went to Psalm 63. He says, I've looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. It's better than compliments. It's better than human glory. It's better to be told you're a good boy. It's better to be honored among everyone else. To have your steadfast love, to feel your pleasure, to see your smile upon me. That's better than life. And my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods, as with fat and marrow. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I will count everything else as dung, as a loss. And I will devote my life to keeping my eyes fixed on you. Constantly reminding myself, you make a better door than a window. Get out of the way, stupid. And constantly fighting any desire to get between you people and that glory. You people and that honor. Do you remember the way John the Baptist, everybody remembers that John the Baptist said that he must increase, but I must decrease. But the context of this is he talks about a wedding. He says, I'm the buddy. I'm, I'm, I'm the best man. He's the bridegroom coming to receive his bride. And as I thought about that picture this morning, I thought about how, I don't even know the right word. How ridiculous it would be. Who's our next wedding? Bryson and Michaela. They're going to be the first ones to get married on the newly refurbished stage. You're all invited, by the way. When is it? March 2nd. March 2nd. Mark your calendars now. It's potluck. The dinner's potluck as well. But it, how foolish would it be if on that day one of you ladies showed up in a clown suit and went marching down the aisle just as Michaela made her walk? Or one of you tried to figure out what Bryson was wearing on that day so that you could one-up him to make sure that all eyes were on you rather than on him. John the Baptist said, I... That's not what the bridegroom's best man does. My joy is complete as I see him united with his bride. My joy is complete as I see others tasting and seeing and beholding and satisfied in that same glory which I have received. That's the root of humility, I believe. It's not hating yourself. It's not abandoning any hope for your own good. It's hoping for what is best. It is tasting and being satisfied in what, what is best and spending the rest of your life to pursuing that and that alone. Father, we praise you and we thank you. As we prepare our hearts to come to this table now, it, it, it is the nature of fallen man. After all that, we will prepare to come and taste, to receive, to meet with Christ Jesus at his table. And inevitably, what will happen in the moments to come is our prideful little hearts will flare up again. We will constantly think of ourselves. And so help us, Father, to put that pride to death. Help us to come and just see and behold and taste and receive to meet with Christ and be drawn towards him more fully. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.